The end justifies the means. And the point of the saying is that morally wrong actions are sometimes necessary, according to this philosophy, they are sometimes necessary to achieve morally right outcomes. Actions can only be considered morally right or wrong by virtue of the, the morality of the outcome. So in essence, what this says, if, if the results are good, then whatever actions I take to, to achieve those results are also okay. That's this philosophy. And uh, this moral philosophy is usually attributed to uh, Machiavelli uh, and his famous 16th century political treatise called The Prince. And what he does in that treatise is he, he writes about how rulers are to, to keep power. In order to keep power, sometimes they can do wrong things if it benefits the greater good. And this, uh, this moral philosophy that uh, should be condemned has been accepted and it has morphed over time and has become known as, to a certain degree, as pragmatism. And, and pragmatism has been widely accepted both in the world and in the church. Pragmatism, again, as I just explained, is, is a philosophy that evaluates actions based upon uh, the results of those actions. And if an action gets you the desired results, then that action is morally acceptable. That's the philosophy of, of pragmatism. And this, this philosophy has become so ingrained in our culture that we probably don't even realize how prevalent it is. And there's some aspects to pragmatism that, that are okay. Now, we are all pragmatists to one degree or another. We naturally do what works, because if something doesn't work, we stop doing it. But there's another element to pragmatism. And one example of how much this has permeated our, our culture is the discussion regarding abortion. In 1972, it was a landmark court case known as Roe versus Wade. And in that, the court ruled in favor of a woman's right to choose. And today is the what is known as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, the closest Sunday to the anniversary of that decision, January 22nd. And as we look at that, that decision that was made so many years ago in 1972, we look and see that the basis for it is, is pragmatism. And you want to achieve a specific result, and whatever means you have to, to use to get that result are deemed to be acceptable. So our culture now says that if, if a woman gets pregnant and does not want to, to give birth to that child, then, then she doesn't have to. And any actions that she wants to, to take to re- remedy that situation, to achieve her desired goal, it would say would be morally acceptable, even if it means taking the life of her unborn child. There's very little thought put to the actual morality of the action, but merely just the, the ends, because the end justifies the mean. And it's heartbreaking to count the cost of that upon our nation. I looked up just one statistic in, in the, the abortion rate in 2015. It had declined down to 
188 abortions to every 1,000 births. Think about that. So almost 20% for every 1,000 births, there's 188 abortions. Millions upon millions of unborn children have died at the altar of pragmatism. What's best for me? Pragmatism has has permeated our culture, but it's also infiltrated and profoundly impacted the church. What do I mean by that? Well, there are many churches that have abandoned the Bible, abandoned all that God has said in his word, because the result that they want is to get people to, to fill in the seats. And if that's your goal and you'll do anything to achieve that goal, then yeah, you can, you can lay the Bible aside, you can stop speaking of Jesus, you can stop speaking of, of sin and repentance and the gospel. Since the desired end is more people in the seats, whatever it takes to get that has become acceptable. But what does scripture have to say about pragmatism? In the church, if you have a concordance at the back of your Bible and you go look for pragmatism or pragmatic, you won't see any of those in your concordance at the the back of Scripture. But does God have nothing to say about it? And I would say certainly not. And even though the concept was was formalized by Machiavelli in the 16th century that the the end justifies the means, it's something that's been with us from the fall. How many of us have ever uh, tried to to justify our sin or explain it away because of the result of it? Well, the result was okay. We've all done that. That's our natural tendency. It comes from our own human hearts. As we continue our study in John's Gospel, what we're going to see this morning, we're going to see the pragmatic mindset of Jesus' day. As we come to to John chapter 2, We're going to look at verses 12 to 17 this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up there and read along with me. It says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal, for your house will consume me. John relates to us in this passage the the righteous anger of Christ as he looked at this pragmatic approach that the Jews had taken and it was dishonoring the temple. It was dishonoring his father's house. It It had morphed the temple and that's what human pragmatism does. It takes what God had originally set out and intended and it morphs us to fit our own desires and our own wants. And the Jews had defiled the temple with this. The Jewish leaders had usurped the 
the clear instructions of God's word, and they've said, we know better, we'll just do it this way. And as we look at this, this passage, what we're going to see is a sharp contrast between worship as it often is and worship as it ought to be. And in the middle of that, we're going to see, hey, how do you get from one to the other? How do you get from worship as it often is to worship as it ought to be? Questions that we'll, we'll look at and, and think through in this passage are, how should we worship? Is there a right, a right way to worship God? Are there wrong ways? And in these verses, we'll see three particulars regarding worship and pragmatism that we need to make note of. Especially if there's a right way and wrong ways to worship. We should, we should make note of, hey, what are the right ways? How do we need to submit to God? How has he called us to worship him? Because he is the one who decides how he is worshipped, not us. And that's what we will see. But as we start to, to look at this passage, now verses 12 and 13 kind of provide the, the background, the setting for us. Gives us the, the, the background for verses 14 through 17. Uh, before we get there, and as we see in, in verses 12 and 13, this is kind of this transition from Jesus being at the wedding at Cana, where he performed his first miracle. And he travels from there with his mother, his brother, and his, his brothers, and his disciples. And he goes to Capernaum, and Capernaum had kind of become his, his new home. He grew up as a, as a child in Nazareth, and uh, Capernaum had become his new base of ministry operations in the future. So he went back there, and he was with uh, those individuals, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, for several days before having to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, and he had to go up to Jerusalem because there were three feasts every single year that all of the, the men in Jerusalem had to go to. Uh, the, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover. These three feasts, all the Jewish males had to be in attendance at. So he makes his way to Jerusalem. And while he was hesitant, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, he's hesitant to perform this miracle at the wedding in Cana. He says, woman, it's not my time. My time hasn't come. It wasn't appropriate for, for Jesus to, to do a big public miracle and then unveil himself at this wedding. But now... At the temple in Jerusalem, now is the appropriate time for Jesus to reveal himself to the nation. And what we're going to see in this passage is the first great public act of Jesus. And what's interesting is that John's gospel uh, records a clearing of the temple at the beginning here. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the cleansing or the clearing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry. Which then brings a, a, a question. Are these two separate incidents at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry? Or is it a single event that all four of the gospel writers are explaining and looking at in a different way? And I would argue that they are two separate occasions. And here's why. Because we have time markers associated with each of them. As we've looked at John's gospel, he's made it really clear to keep track of the days, right? We saw at the end of chapter 1, if you just look at the first line in each paragraph, of, hey, the next day, the next day, the next day, and then on the third day. And now we have another time constrictor saying, hey, a few days after that, they didn't stay in Capernaum, not many days. And then they went up to Jerusalem. 
John bounds this in time, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke do as well, but they do it at the end of Jesus' ministry. His final week in Jerusalem. That's when they all show that Jesus cleansed the temple for a second time. So that's why I say that I think there are clearly two separate instances of this clearing of the temple by Jesus. Additionally, this is the first of three Passovers that appear in John's Gospel. We have one here in 2.13, another one in chapter 6, verse 4, and then the final one, chapter 11, verse 55, and following. And what that does for us is it gives us a time frame for Jesus' ministry. And it was about three years. And as we come to verse 14, after looking at this setting, this background, we see the first particular regarding pragmatism and worship. We can look at it this way in verse 14, that man's tendency is toward pragmatic worship. Look with me at verse 14. That in the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So why is this significant? So Jesus goes to, to the temple complex. Right? He goes there and the first place he would have entered into to see this would have been what's known as the court of the Gentiles. This is as close as the Gentiles could get. This is where they could come and worship. This is where they could come and pray and meditate and be taught concerning the things of God. Gentile worshipers of Yahweh, the God of the Jews, would come to this court. But instead of finding many Gentiles in prayer, what does Jesus find? Money changers. Animal vendors. Now, we have to also think of it this way. The, these two groups of people, the money changers and the vendors, they're doing something that is good. And let me explain that. Because this is the, the feast of the Passover. Everybody is traveling to Jerusalem from wherever they were. They had to travel to Jerusalem. Now, if you have to offer sacrifices during the Passover feast, is it easier to take your animals with you that whole journey or to, to go and purchase animals in Jerusalem to sacrifice? It's much easier, much more convenient to just purchase animals for sacrifice when you get to Jerusalem. Additionally... You had to pay a temple tax. And the temple tax had to be paid in a specific coin, what's known as the, the Tyrian coin, because they had to make sure that the tax was paid with the right amount. So you had to have some consistency in currency. And so the money exchangers were there to be able to exchange currencies. And the, the, the cost of the temple tax was a half shekel. So it was common for, uh, for two Jewish men to, to partner together and just throw in a, a full shekel to pay the temple tax, which is exactly what Jesus says to Peter when the question of does Jesus pay taxes in Matthew 17. He tells Peter, hey, go, op go catch a fish and in the fish's mouth you'll, you'll find a shekel and go take that shekel and pay the temple tax for you and for me. So the, these two groups of, of men who were here, they're doing something that is good. It's a good service that they're providing. And in fact, this services that they're providing, animals and exchanging out money, had previously been over on the Mount of Olives, across uh, the Kidron Valley. But it had moved to be in the temple now. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's not objecting to what they're doing. That was a good thing that they were doing. What he objected to 
was how they were doing it, where they were doing it. They were doing these things at the temple and by setting up in the court of the Gentiles. What are the Gentiles not allowed to do now? They're not able to to worship God in an undistracted way. As I mentioned, what should have been a quiet place to come and pray and meditate now is loud with animals and the commotion and the, the clanging of coins being counted and people in conversation. The court of the Gentiles was created so that the nations might come to worship God. King Solomon, as he was getting ready to dedicate the temple in his prayer in 1 Kings 8, he says this, he says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know that your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. See, God has always had a desire for the nations, the Gentiles, to worship him. God was never exclusive of only Jews. Now, at best, what the Jews have done here is they've just overlooked something and they haven't thought about it. And at worst, they've become extremely nationalistic and are purposely trying to push the Gentiles out and away from worshiping God. We don't have anything said about their motives here. We only see the nature of what has taken place. By setting up the money changers and the animal vendors in the court of the Gentiles, it was changed from a place of prayer to a place of business. What Jesus is going to say in the next couple of verses, he's going to say, you, yeah, you've made my, uh, the house of my father, you've taken it and you've transformed it into a house of trade. And that's what pragmatism does. Again, it reshapes what God has intended, what God has said, and we remake it in, in whatever we desire. And again, pragmatism is not something that was just a first century problem. It is very much a 21st century problem with every century in between as well. There's a, a Christian blogger that I follow. He told the story of a long conversation he had with a creative arts director of a large church. And he's on, on a, a flight uh, with this uh, lady and starts up a conversation. And they, they begin to, to talk about what they do ministry-wise and she was responsible for putting together and leading her church's uh, worship service uh, each week. And she described her typical week in this way, that, that early in the week, the senior pastor tells her his focus for that Sunday and she gets to work. And she, she thinks of stage props that will complement the message. She considers assembling the dance team. She combs through YouTube and popular movies to look for clips, especially funny clips. Some Sundays she removes the sermon altogether. So the church can watch a painter produce a work of art or a drama team lead a performance. These visual sermons, she says, are often more effective than preaching. And hey, I would just say, hey, the, her church has wholeheartedly embraced a pragmatic approach. And not all of those things are wrong. Pragmatism in and of itself is not wrong. But when pragmatism becomes unbiblical, when we lose track of uh, any kind of biblical filter of what we should do or should not do, in our worship service, as we worship God, as we come to bow to Him, to honor Him, to glorify Him. If we don't have a biblical filter on that, we end up dishonoring Him. 
That is what had outraged Jesus as he comes into the court of the Gentiles. And ultimately, when we, when we wholeheartedly embrace pragmatism, what becomes most important is not pleasing God, but pleasing man. Doing whatever is necessary in those things. And again, a pragmatic approach is, is not wrong in everything. Again, we are all pragmatists. And in everyday life, we, we commonly do this. But he, here is where I would say we, we have to evaluate. If God's word has clearly stated something, we don't have the freedom or the license to, to adjust that. We don't have the freedom or license to, to cast it aside. If, if God in his temple said, this court is intended to be for Gentile worship, this is where the Gentiles shall come and pray to me. If this is what God has said, then that's what needs to be done. We don't get to, to repurpose what God has ordained. There's a... Phenomenal book on worship by uh, John MacArthur. And in that book, he, he works through uh, these, these four forms of unacceptable worship that we see in the Bible. And these, when I, when I first came across this, it, it deeply humbled me. Some of them will be obvious to you, but others will, are profound. Because we are all guilty of pragmatic worship. I don't mean to, to say this... Uh, of just pointing to, to other churches. We all need to evaluate our hearts. But listen to these four forms of unacceptable worship as he defines them. And number one, and which would be most obvious to us, is the worship of false gods. And he says that's wrong. That doesn't please God to worship other gods. Secondly, the worship of the true God in a wrong form. What do I mean by that? Well, think of Exodus 32. The Israelites had just been delivered by God from slavery in Egypt. And Moses takes them to Mount Sinai. And he goes up Mount Sinai. He's getting the, the Ten Commandments. He's receiving the law from God. But meanwhile, back, back down with the people, Aaron is doing something. And Aaron is leading the people in rebellion, in idolatry. And he makes a golden calf. He creates this calf. And then what's amazing is he creates the calf and says... Israel, this is the God who's delivered you. This is, this is your God who just brought you out of slavery in Egypt. And God is enraged. Because they're worshiping the true God, but in the wrong form. A third form of unacceptable worship is the worship of the true God in a self-styled manner. And this, is, this one's convicting. And, and improving this and demonstrating this, he points to Leviticus chapter 10 of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who in Leviticus 10, right after they were, in essence, cleansed and, and prepared to be priests of the Lord, they disobey God. God said, hey, do these things and I'm going to tell you exactly how you need to do them. That mattered to God. And they didn't do what they were supposed to do. But instead, Leviticus 10 says they offered strange fire. And there's discussions about what that means, but the big point is they didn't worship as God had prescribed for them to worship. And the Lord took their life. Additionally, we see in 1 Samuel 15, King, King Saul was told to, to wait. Don't offer sacrifices. Wait for Samuel. Seven days later, Saul in his impatience decides to do what? Offer sacrifices. 
And God rejects him as king because of that. Additionally, uh, a man named Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, who they were, they were carrying the ark of God as it was not intended to be carried. Rather than the Levites carrying it, they put it on a cart. And as the, the cart was being carried through, it kind of got jostled and the ark was falling down. And Uzzah goes out and, and lays his hand to try and save the ark from falling on the ground. Like, hey, that's, that's a good intention, but the Lord strikes him down because nobody was supposed to touch the ark of God. And the, the issue there was additionally, they weren't properly carrying it as it was supposed to be carried. God sets certain things in order and we need to follow them. We have worship of false gods, the worship of the true God in the wrong form, the worship of the true God in a self-styled manner, and then, fourthly, the last form of unacceptable worship is the worship of the true God in the right way, but with a wrong attitude. See, worship is, is internal, begins there, internal with external results, and it's directed upwards. And if we don't, we can, we can do all of the right things, but if our heart is not in it, is that pleasing to the Lord? The Pharisees were fantastic at rituals. They could do everything that God wanted them to do, but Jesus says, hey, you've missed the mark. You don't get it. And they were soundly condemned. And the animal vendors and the money changers here, they were doing good for the travelers coming to Jerusalem. And those were, those were good services that they were providing, but good intentions are not able to cleanse our actions. Good intentions can't be the barometer of what we should do and not do. And even well-meaning pragmatism can dishonor God if it's unbiblical. And again, that's the, that's the evaluation. Is, it, is something biblical? I love what uh, one of my seminary profs said of, hey, I'm all for being a pragmatist. So let's be pragmatists, but let's be biblical pragmatists. Let's allow scripture to be the filter regarding what we should or should not do. And we have to understand this on, on two fronts. Number one, as a corporate body, as a church. What do we do and what do we don't do? Do we allow the Lord to dictate what we do in our worship services? Or do we determine it according to whatever we feel will have the best results? And we may get results and it may feel like we're doing the right thing, but is that what it, the Lord would have us do? That's a question that we have to ask. And as a, as a worship service, hey, our worship is intended to glorify and exalt Christ. To encourage and, and edify, to build up believers, and then to, to proclaim the truth to unbelievers. That's what we want to do in our worship services. And my preaching is intended to present what God has already said to us in his word. Nothing more and nothing less. I can't add to it and I can't leave stuff out. Otherwise, I'm not being faithful as a steward of God's word. It's interesting, in, in 1 Timothy 4... Paul describes what he wants Timothy to do in the worship service. He says in verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And with that, we can also pull in what Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's what we're called to do in the worship service. 
And if we stick to that, we will be able to avoid a pragmatic approach that unintentionally can dishonor the Lord. And that's one front that we need to evaluate this and look at this as a, as a corporate body, as a church, but then also as, as individuals. Again, we're all prone to pragmatism. Let me just do whatever works. But as individuals, we have to take inventory of our lives. Why do you do the things that you do? Are you worshiping God as you should or just according to what fits your needs, your desires, what's convenient to you? And ultimately, this, the reason that the Jews moved the, the animals and the money changers from the Mount of Olives to the temple was convenience. Right? That's, that's what they were motivated by. But as we, as we look at ourselves in our worship, are we simply doing what's best in our obedience? Are we simply doing what is convenient? Or are we willing to submit to God? Does he get to determine our, the way that we worship and the way that we live? Because that is what Christ calls us to. Christ entered into the court of the Gentiles and beheld these men who elevated their opinions above God's commands, and he, and he responded with righteous anger. So we see man's tendency toward pragmatic worship, and then we see, verses 15 and 16, Christ's judgment of pragmatic worship. Look at me at those verses. It says, In making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So what Jesus did upon coming into this this scene is what would have been laying around on the ground, probably littered everywhere. Where you have animals, you, you have rope to lead and guide the animals. would have taken these bits of of rope and, and bound them together to make a, a whip. And the idea is here is a, something that had a handle and then multiple little cords to it. And he uses this cord to get the attention of the animals and of the, the vendors. And he chases them out. He says he drove them all out of the temple. And the implication is he drove the vendors and the money exchangers out. And with them, he drove out the animals. And, and notice he doesn't he doesn't deal with any of the buyers. Who does he drive out? The sellers. He's not concerned with those buying and partaking of the, the convenience. He says, no, the issue is, hey, coming and setting up shop in the temple where you should not be. And while Jesus had a whip in his hand on this occasion, it wasn't his physical force that chased them out, but it was his moral power was suddenly him acting with an authority to drive out that which is unjust. In, and notice how many people argue with him. How many people say, no, we have a right to be here. Nobody. Nobody argues with him. Nobody defends their case. We should be in the court of the Gentiles. And the implication is everybody know they shouldn't be there. It was the anger of Christ that startled the traitors and the changers and and drove them out. And, and as, we, as we look at this, this story, what we have is the, the perfect example of what righteous anger looks like. Right? And we, are, we all deal with anger. 
Anger is a, is a common desire among us because anger is always the perception of something that has gone wrong. We feel angry because we have perceived an injustice or something that is evil. But here Jesus demonstrates anger, but it's a righteous anger. And we could, we could then ask, well, what, how do we know it's a righteous anger? What, what qualities does righteous anger have that unrighteous anger doesn't have? And Robert Jones, in his book, Uprooting Anger, what, identify these things. Of Righteous anger says, first and foremost, it, it reacts against actual sin. Not incorrect perceptions of sin, but actual sin. Secondly, righteous anger focuses on God and His kingdom rights and concerns, and not me and my kingdom rights and concerns. When Jesus cleanses the temple, what is He most concerned with? What they were doing to His Father's house. A third quality of righteous anger is it is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in a godly way. So what's amazing is that Jesus responded in anger, but it was a very controlled anger. Because he doesn't hit anybody with the whip. He chases them out with the whip. He didn't smite anybody down. He's, he, he remedied the situation. He addressed what needed to be addressed and didn't go a step further. That's what righteous anger does. It's still demonstrated according to other godly, Christ-like qualities. You can, you can say this. Godly anger is that which is demonstrated according to the fruit of the Spirit. You still have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in the middle of your anger. That's when you know you have a righteous anger, not an unrighteous anger. In the past, I had a counselee that I was working through some anger things with, and he was convinced that all of the anger that he was demonstrating was a righteous anger. He was convinced that every ball, that's, that's sinful. It needs to be addressed. I'm like, okay, but, but let's talk through this. And, and by the end of our discussion, he was, he was deeply humbled. Because when we, when we hold our anger, the typical way that we respond, when we hold it up to Christ's righteous anger, we're humbled. Because we see, yeah, we, we hardly ever demonstrate anger righteously. We hardly ever demonstrate anger while still under the control of the Spirit, still demonstrating love self-control, patience. Yet that is what Jesus does here. Anger is always a response to something that we perceive to be evil. But as those who are fallen and sinful, what happens to our perceptions? They're skewed. But Jesus always has a right perception. His judgments are always accurate. What's also interesting about the... But the anger that, that Jesus demonstrates here, and also in the Old Testament, the anger of God is spoken of often, but only the anger of God also has an invitation to peace, an invitation for repentance and faith. God's anger always has an invitation. That's why he lets us know that he is angry, that there will be uh, results in the future if we don't turn to him now, but there's always an invitation to turn to him now. And even as Jesus acts in anger here and drives out and clears the court of the Gentiles, there's also, as one pastor said, there's a prophetic invitation. Jesus is, is in driving out the vendors and the, the money changers. What is he doing? He's preparing the way for others to come and worship. That's the invitation. And in driving out the money changers, he's saying, hey, you can't be here because worshipers are supposed to be here. 
That's what's supposed to be taking place here. This is where people should come to pray, to meditate, to worship God. So what do we take away from this? What do we take away from Christ's response to what was taking place in the temple? I would say first and foremost, we need to contemplate our worship. The seriousness of our worship. How we approach God in prayer. How we approach God in our corporate worship services together. And in our minds, do we have a, a Jesus who is gracious and merciful? He should be. We're we just saying his mercy is more. Amen? But we also need to have a Jesus who is holy. A Jesus who, uh, who is not pleased with sin. Who is angry at sin but exercises his anger in a just and righteous way. And after recording for us the clearing out of the temple, John then tells us how this, this act on Jesus' part impacted his disciples. His disciples are there watching. That's the implication. And for the disciples, this event brought to mind a passage of the Old Testament. If you look at verse 17 with me, you see the nature of true worship, beholding and believing in Jesus. His disciples at that time remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's quoting Psalm 69, 9. And David wrote that verse because of the persecution that he faced in his own day. People were attacking him because he was so zealous for the house of the Lord. Psalm 69, 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's a messianic verse. Romans 15.3 quotes the second half of the verse. And the disciples understood that a zeal for God, a love for God, a, a sincere and all-encompassing desire to worship God was what would characterize the Messiah. That's what would mark him off as different from everybody else. And after Jesus performed the miracle at the wedding turning water into wine. His disciples believed in him. That was the point of that miracle. We saw that in verse 11 of chapter 2. They saw, they beheld, and then they believed. The same thing happens here. The disciples are viewing his cleansing of the temple, his zeal for God as confirming of him being the Messiah. But we should understand and what we'll, what we'll get to next week in verses 28, I'm sorry, 18 to 22 is that when Jesus comes through and clears out the temple, that raises some questions. If you look at uh, verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In essence, who are you and what do you think you're doing? What gives you the right to cleanse the temple? Who do you think you are? And that's a, a question that the disciples have an answer to and the Jews are going to have an answer to. The disciples see what Jesus did and they say, wow, this is the Messiah. The Jews see what he did and they're like, what? Who are you? What do you think you're doing? Two very different answers to that question. Even though Jesus is there saying, hey, something new is here. And what is, he, what is it alluded to in verse 17? My father's house. That Jesus is acting as the divine son. So even though Jesus is, is there announcing who he is, the Jews are like, who are you? 
It's a funny story of uh, the actor Cary Grant, who was once walking along the street and catches the eye of somebody across the street. And this man comes running over. I, I know who you are. You're, you're, no, don't tell me. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Rock, Rock Hudson? No, no. Uh, and Cary Grant, wanting to, to help him along out of his embarrassment, says, no, Cary Grant. And the man says, no, 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 you're, you're, uh... and that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is there telling them who he is, and yet they're still like, who are you? I don't know. I don't see it. Despite his own testimony, they did not believe. Despite his, his actions, his demonstration of authority, they didn't believe. And that's the, the beginning of a pattern here in the Gospel of John, of what's going to take place. And that question that was raised by Jesus' action, who are you? It's a question the disciples had to answer. It's a question that all of the other Jews had to answer. And it's a question that you and I still have to answer today. Who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? Do we believe in the Jesus of the scriptures? Or do we believe in a Jesus of our own making? Do we believe in him as he has explained and revealed himself to be? So we're called to believe in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and then his resurrection from the grave. And if you're here today, that's what I would call you to do. To place your faith and trust in Christ. Believe in who he is and what he has come to do for you. That we are all sinners separated from a holy God and he is our only hope of forgiveness and salvation. Ultimately, what we see is that we must behold and believe in Jesus, even as his disciples did. What we've seen this morning is man's sinful tendency towards pragmatism, Christ's judgment of of pragmatism in worship. Then we see true worship of his disciples beholding and believing. We're called to, to obey. We're called to, to apply all that God has said, even when it comes to the way that we worship. God has ordered it a particular way for a reason, and we are called to submit to that. And what's, what's amazing is we are called to, to follow the example of Christ and, and his zeal for God. As John often does, there's a little bit of a, a double meaning here. John loves double meanings. Verse 17, as he's quoting Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's often you know, thought of as you know, this, this will be an all-consuming desire in the heart of the Messiah. And that is absolutely true. That his desire for the Lord sets him apart. But there will also be this. That word of consume is the idea of devouring ravenously. To consume. And as I mentioned earlier, there's another occasion in which Jesus cleanses the temple. It's at the end of his ministry. And what's noted in in the other Gospels is that immediately after Jesus cleanses the temple, as soon as he comes in and says, You gotta you gotta clear this out, you gotta clean this up. As soon as he does that, the Jewish leaders 
get together and say, we've got to deal with this guy. We can't have him saying this. We can't have him calling us out. There's another way that Jesus' zeal consumed him. Now, your zeal for God, your zeal for worship can also make you some enemies. And ultimately, that was what prompted the Jewish leaders to finally and successfully conspire together to put Jesus to death. Him cleansing the temple. Calling them out for the way that they were improperly worshiping. Zeal for the Lord will set you apart in this world. If it hasn't already, it will in the future. Now, the zeal for the Lord will mark you out separate and distinct from the world. And in the same way that Jesus, as a Jew, his zeal for the Lord marked him out as distinct from other Jews. There may be occasions where your zeal for the Lord will even mark you out from other Christians. And that uh, is significant. That our zeal from the Lord, zeal for the Lord, can create conflict there as well. We must have a zeal for pure worship. Everything that we do must have a foundation in God's Word. And we're not called to act as Jesus did and go make whips and overturn tables and do all of those things. We still need to demonstrate the, the fruit of the Spirit and exercise anger in a, in a righteous way, as he did. But usually we are unsuccessful in that. But, but our zeal must begin, first and foremost, in our own hearts. That we wouldn't be pragmatists. That we wouldn't just do what is convenient for ourselves in our own worship life. But we would submit every area every aspect of our being to the Lordship of Christ. And then that we would do that same thing as a corporate body, as a church together. I pray that our zeal would increase. I pray that that we would feel humbled by this. I know I certainly do. That when I hold myself up to the zeal, the love that Christ had for, for God, the things of God, for the pure worship of God, that I fall far short. I pray that we all would see and realize that. And may the Lord, as a result, increase our faith. May He increase our zeal for worshiping Him in spirit and in truth this week. And may we not hinder anybody from coming to worship Him. Amen? Let's pray. Holy God. Holy, holy, holy are You. Lord, we are not fit to be in your presence in and of ourselves. We are a a people of unclean lips. But Lord, we thank you, we praise you that we are able to come into your presence. That we are able to come and worship you, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what your son Jesus has done. And Lord, we long to worship you for who you are, for what you have done, and we long to worship you according to what you have prescribed, with a pure worship, a worship that might be acceptable and pleasurable in your sight. So Lord, teach us, work in us, 
examine our hearts. Show us any way that we have become unbiblical pragmatists. Show us any way that we might have cast aside your word in favor of our opinions. Lord, may we turn from that. May we look in faith with renewed eyes to Jesus. Lord, may we behold him. May we believe him with ever greater clarity, with ever greater depth. We long to know the one who has lived and died on our behalf. He is our hope. He is our joy. And may we worship you in his name, in spirit and in truth. Amen.